great start. I've already heard from some of you that you had your collard greens and black-eyed peas and you're ready to go, right? Um, but I pray that this morning we'll see uh, in God's Word what He can have in store for those who love Him and desire to serve Him. I want to dismiss children, kindergarten through fourth grade, that want to be a part of kids' worship this morning. They can uh, follow Mr. Adam and Miss Katie to the Kids' Center. They're going to have a great time up there. And uh, I know a few moms and dads that want to join them probably, but I know they're going to be in, in great hands up there. And if you're um, new to Trinity, a guest today, or you've just been coming the past few weeks, uh, something that I like to tell folks from time to time is we want to make no apology for having a, a desire to reach the next generation and uh, help us as a church family, all of you, uh, do all we can to communicate that Jesus said, let these children come to me. We don't want to have any obstacle, any distraction whatsoever in kids knowing and, and loving and serving Jesus Christ. And all of us need to be growing in that as what Jeff read to start the service this morning, growing toward that maturity in Christ. And if the Apostle Paul said, I haven't arrived, probably none of the rest of us can say that we have this morning, right? We haven't arrived. And so we're in process, and you've made some commitments. I pray more than a resolution that you have uh, taken some time to get along with God and make some commitments to Him. So let's find in the Word of God, Proverbs chapter 9, Proverbs chapter 16, and uh, the whole book will be flipping back and forth. So let's stand as we open to Proverbs chapter 9 and Proverbs chapter 16. We'll be in chapter 16 a good bit this morning. This series that has to do with the satisfied life. Now let me be real clear. I'm not talking about the easy life. I'm not talking about early retirement. I'm not I'm not talking about pain-free living here, although if we apply these principles, we can avoid a lot of heartache and heartbreak and heal from some that we've experienced. I'm talking about satisfaction that is so deep within that overflows, like Jesus talking to the woman at the well. It, it overflows into eternal life, but it starts in here, that life that Jesus in John 10, 10 said was more abundant. So now you found your place in Proverbs. You're like, Pastor Robbie, all that's New Testament, right? No, Proverbs is in the Old Testament, but we'll see that it is fulfilled in so many ways through our relationship with Jesus Christ. So you found Proverbs chapter 9. Verse 10 is a starting point for us as we talk about an awesome knowledge of the Almighty God. Proverbs 9 and verse 10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. So foundational for everything we can learn in Proverbs is an awesome or fearful knowledge of the Almighty. And that word fear in the Hebrew means fear. <laughs> it means that there is an awesome trembling awareness of God's presence. And when we know him, there is understanding. Now flip over to chapter 16, and we'll see an encouraging side of this. It says in verse 22, wisdom or insight, different translations 
uh, interpret this word a number of different ways, but it says insight is a fountain of life for its possessor. One translation says it is a wellspring. It means it brings uh, satisfaction, fulfillment, everything that your heart desires righteously. Now, we, we know apart from Jesus, our hearts are desperately wicked, deceitful above all things, but a redeemed heart is satisfied with these principles of wisdom. But folly is the instruction of fools. A wise heart instructs its mouth and increases learning with its speech. Pleasant words are a honeycomb, sweet to the taste and health to the bones. If you're a guest, we will give you a jar of honey when you leave so you can remember that verse this morning. Just hand us that welcome card and you'll leave here with a jar of honey this morning. But there's a certain satisfaction that is not a satisfaction this world can even experience or offer. There's a deeper satisfaction when you have this wisdom that can only come from God. It's the promise of Proverbs, and so we're going to spend about three months looking at Proverbs and Ecclesiastes with a little uh, touch of Song of Solomon in there as well next month when we get into marriage and family. So let's pray and ask for the Spirit of God to give us wisdom, insight, and conviction this morning. Father, we thank you for your words of wisdom that have been preserved since antiquity, Lord. All truth is your truth wherever it may be found. And Lord, as Solomon prayed for wisdom, we ask for wisdom. For you have said in James, Lord, that if we ask for wisdom, that you give it to us without reproach, without talking down to us, Lord. You give it to us graciously and abundantly. So, Lord, we're asking for not only understanding and wisdom, but courage to live out the instruction that you give us in the days ahead. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. And you can be seated. There's a saying that ignorance is bliss. That, uh, you know, sometimes it's better to not know something than to be held accountable for it. But the problem with that is life does hold us accountable. We do go through things in life. We go through tests and and situations and obstacles in life that will hold us accountable for that which we don't know. Ignorance is not always bliss. I remember hearing about the, the man who asked his wife one time when he thought she had made some bad decisions. He says, I don't understand how God can make somebody so pretty and allow them to be so ignorant. And she responded, well, God made me pretty so you would be attracted to me. And he made me ignorant so I would be attracted to you. <laughs> so, well, sometimes ignorance is not so bliss. It could, it, it could lead us to make some bad decisions. Life is full of decisions that we need God's wisdom, wisdom from above, in order to lead and to live a a satisfied life. Not a life that that possesses everything this world has to offer, but a life that engages God and gets in on what he has for us. Proverbs in the Hebrew Bible is called the Proverbs of Solomon, written by um, not only Solomon, but a few others that he was able to influence and impact with his wisdom over the years. Uh, the settings provide uh, basically three overlapping categories in Proverbs. You'll find practical wisdom in Proverbs. Just We might call it common sense, but is there anything so uncommon as common sense? And Solomon had a lot of it. Remember, he prayed and asked God for wisdom. God said, you can ask anything you want, and I'm going to give it to you. He asked 
for wisdom. Now, Warren Wiersbe said that he probably should have asked for goodness because sometimes he didn't act on the wisdom that he had. But he asked for wisdom, and some things he learned the hard way, and other things were just supernaturally given to him as a result of that request. And so there's practical wisdom. There's also the wisdom from the royal court that we read about. You might call it leadership wisdom that you find in the book of Proverbs. And then there's the parental wisdom of, say, a father or a mother instructing their children, giving advice, here's how to live your life at its best. And while all truth is God's truth, we know that this is not like those Chinese proverbs. You know, you pop, used to they were fortune cookies, but now you find the little Chinese proverbs. And, you know, every now and then a blind squirrel finds a nut and you might find something that's actually a good common sense. But this is divinely inspired wisdom, the Holy Spirit of God moving Solomon and a few that he influenced to pen these things. You won't get it from a scientist or a philosopher, only from the Holy Spirit of God. And we need that same Spirit to give us wisdom and understanding and and what we would call today illumination when we read the Word of God that's been revealed to us so that we would know not only what it means, but how to live it out in our daily lives. You have 31 chapters in Proverbs, 513 sayings. Now, we know according to 1 Kings that Solomon was famous for 3,000 plus sayings, but 513 of those are recorded in the book here of Proverbs. And take those 31 chapters, a challenge that I would present you with this morning is every month that has 31 days, there are seven, right? In every calendar year, there are seven months that have 31 days. And if throughout this year you were to say, I know you've got a little catching up to do, you've got four chapters to go back and read, right? But throughout this year, if you were to read a chapter a day, corresponding in each month with 31 days, corresponding with the date. So on the 1st, you would read Proverbs 1, and on the 31st, you would read Proverbs 31. Then in the year, just doing that with the months with 31 days, you would read through Proverbs seven times, and you would find yourself with an amazing amount of common sense for practical living. Wisdom, as we just read here, though, begins with a fear of the Lord. Now, again, this is more than just respect, as some translations might say. This is, uh, this is a shaking in your boots kind of fear that you're glad you're on God's side. More importantly, you're glad that God's on your side when you walk with him and know that you're in right relationship with him. But it's also an awareness of his great love. It's, it, it's impossible to worship God and to walk with him without an understanding of this kind of fear of who he is and the consequences of my actions in light of that. So we'll lay a foundation these first two weeks here. We're going to look at what it really means to know him according to the book of Proverbs. And we'll start with who he is in and of himself. And it will be somewhat incarnational today. You learn that word at Christmas time every year, right? That Jesus, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And so we'll see who God is in and of himself and then how he relates to us. We'll see that some this morning. And then next week, we're going to see that Jesus himself is the personification of wisdom. When you read about wisdom in the Proverbs, it's almost like you're reading right out of chapter 1 of who Jesus is, and we'll get into that next week. 
But I'm so glad that as I read about God and talk about God, and I've heard someone this morning talk about studying the names of God, I'm so glad that El Shaddai, the God Almighty in and of himself, the all-sufficient one who doesn't need us, is also, as we learned at Christmas, Emmanuel, God with us, that he is personal, that he loves us, that he knows how to relate to us. So how does Solomon help us to understand God? What does he want us to know about God, his character, his nature, and, and what would make us stand in awe of who he is? Many of us as believers lose that, and I pray that the Holy Spirit and the Word of God will help us recapture that here in these first couple of weeks of this study. Now, I want us to see this morning how Solomon helps us, first of all, in that in Proverbs, we see God's creative power. We see God's creative power. We need to understand that the God that we serve, the God we were singing about this morning, the one true God is the God that spoke this world into existence. So when we begin to consider his design of the heavens and of the earth, of, of nature and all that exists around us, that doesn't cause us to respect Mother Nature, but it causes us to tremble before Father God and all that he is. So you're going to get ready to flip a lot of pages with me as we look. As I mentioned last week, Proverbs is not, uh, it doesn't always flow like we would like it to. And uh, one passage may cover a number of different themes. And so we're going to look at it more thematically and turn back and forth a little bit. But I want us to see God as the creator and the one with all the creative power in the universe. Proverbs chapter 3, and then we'll look at Proverbs chapter 30. But in Proverbs chapter 3, some of you are flipping pages, and I love to hear those pages flip. I've heard that angel's wings sounds like Bible pages flipping. So I like to hear those pages flip. But others of you are scrolling to your verse, and and some of you are watching on the screen. I hope a few of you are taking some notes, and it's okay. It's legal to write in the margins of your Bible. But, But follow along as we look at these scriptures here. Proverbs 3, 19 and 20, the Lord founded the earth by what? By wisdom. And he established the heavens by understanding. By his knowledge, the watery depths broke open. And the clouds dripped with dew. God is the one who not only put this universe in place and created planet Earth like no other planet. He's the one that put this ecosystem in place. And he's the one who praised God yesterday morning and said, enough rain and let the sun break through. Hallelujah. And we we woke up again this morning on a beautiful Lord's Day morning. God is the one who is sovereign over all of that. Some of you are probably thinking, man, it would be wonderful to be a weatherman and have to be as accurate as they are time and time again. As a matter of fact, now we have the technology to look at our weather apps on our phones and and predict as much as they can what's about to happen. It seems like sometimes, if somebody is a meteorologist in here, I apologize for that, but it seems like We can figure it out as much as they can. But you know what none of us can do and and no meteorologist can do? And that control the climate. God is in control of all of that. He put it all in place. In Proverbs 30 and verse 4, if you flip over to Proverbs 30, he asks some questions that you'll find kind of paralleled in the book of Job. 
Remember when Job was going through a difficult season of, well, that's an understatement, but when, when Job could not have gone through any worse circumstances than losing everything that he had, and nobody had answers for him, and finally he's in dialogue with Almighty God. God asked Job some questions. Proverbs restates this in another way. Who has gone up to heaven and come down? Who has gathered the wind in his hands? Who has bound up the waters in a cloak? Who has established all the ends of the earth? What is his name and what is the name of his son? If you know. Solomon was saying there's a mystery about God. Now we know the name of his son now. We know that much of who God is in and of himself would be revealed in Jesus Christ and we're going to look at him as the very personification of wisdom next week. But when God asked Job those questions, he was saying, were you there when I put all of this in place? When I created and I said the mountains will be this high and the valleys will be that deep and the waters will stop right here, were you there, Job, when I put all that in place? And sometimes we question God's control over everything, but his power is indisputable. Stay there in Proverbs chapter 30. Look down a few verses because all that God is in and of himself is ultimately revealed so that we can see him at work in creation. In verse 24, it says four things. I'm sorry, let me go back to verse 18. Three things are beyond me. Four, I can't understand. The way of an eagle in the sky. Only God could create something that beautiful, that, that spectacular. The way of a snake on a rock. The way of a ship at sea. Now, all of these were, were things that just didn't leave a trail or a trace. You couldn't follow it. You couldn't understand it. And then he said, the way of a man with a young woman. Speaking of, uh, it's really romantic language here. There was something that's supposed to be a little bit naive about that, that, that we couldn't quite understand. It, it was taboo to even talk about. And he was saying, whether you're talking about nature or romance, there are things that we just, we can't get our mind around how God created it. It's beautiful to see, it's beautiful to observe, but we'll never fully understand it. In verse 24, four things on the earth are small yet extremely wise. The ants are not a strong people, yet they store up their food in the summer. The hyraxes are not a mighty people. I'm sorry, uh, verse 24, four things on earth are small, the ants. And then verse 26, the hyraxes are not a mighty people, yet they make their homes in the cliffs. And so these creatures are hard to see, but yet they are full of wisdom. And you might say, well, how microscopic can God's creative power be? You are his prized possession. And so turn to chapter 22 for a minute, and then we'll look back at chapter 29. Have you ever thought about how God created you? Remember singing as a kid, he's still working on me to Make me what I ought to be. It took him just a week to make the moon and the stars, the sun and the earth and Jupiter and Mars. How loving and patient he must be because he's still working on me. Working on a few of you, right? Look at chapter 22 and uh, verse 12. I'm sorry, verse 2. The rich and the poor have this in common. 
The Lord made them both. Every person that's ever walked the face of the earth, the earth is the Lord, the fullness thereof, the people and all who dwell in it. God created us all. And then in chapter 29 in verse 13, the poor and the oppressor have this in common. The Lord gives light to the eyes of both. You might say, well, that's just common sense, right? That, so what? People can see. The author of Proverbs says, man, we need to stand in awe of the Creator simply if for no other reason. We have eyesight this morning. Not everyone has that. And some of us, like myself, are struggling with it a little bit as we get older, right? But have you ever thought about the miracle of it? Listen, this is what it did to Charles Darwin, the evolutionist. Charles Darwin wrote this in The Origin of the Species, mind you. He wrote... To suppose that the eye, with all its imitable contrivances, for adjusting the focus to different distances, for admitting different amounts of light, and for correct, the correction of spherical and chromatic aberration could have been formed by natural selection seems, I freely confess, absurd in the highest sense. You know what Darwin was saying? I just have to have faith. When I look at the eye, and I believe in evolution, boy, it takes a lot of faith. And it does. It takes more faith to believe that it evolved this way than that God created it so. Evolutionist and atheist Robert Jastrow said this, The eye is a marvelous instrument resembling a telescope of the highest quality with a lens, an adjustable focus, a variable diaphragm for controlling the amount of light, and optical corrections for spherical and chromatic aberration. The eye appears to have been designed. Hello? No designer of telescopes could have done better. How could this marvelous instrument have evolved by chance through a succession of random events? There seems to be, he would go on to say, no direct proof that evolution can work these miracles. And yet he believes it because he's already predetermined that he doesn't believe in God. And so even the atheists and the evolutionists look at something like the eye and say, man, it is really hard to believe what we believe. And there are Christians who don't stand in awe of our Creator. And so apologist John Blanchard who wrote a book, by the way, titled, Does God Believe in Atheists? I love that title. <laughs> Does God Believe in Atheists? He says, the human eye is a truly amazing phenomenon. Although accounting for just one four thousandth of an adult's weight, it is the medium which, it is the medium which processes some 80% of the information received by its owner from the outside world. The tiny retina contains about 130 million rod-shaped cells. Did you know that? All of you going for those eye exams, did you, did you realize what all they are seeing and what they aren't seeing? He says, which detect light, in, they detect light intensity, transmit impulses to visual, the visual cortex of the brain by means of some one million nerve fibers, while nearly six million cone-shaped cells do the same job. But respond specifically to color variation. The eyes can handle 500,000 messages simultaneously. Now, I know we have some multitaskers here that some of you can do household chores and watch TV and listen to the ball game on the radio all at the same time. Your eye can handle 500,000 messages simultaneously. 
and are kept clear by ducts producing just the right amount of fluid with which the lids cleanse both eyes simultaneously in one five thousandth of a second. So for the atheist who would say, well, seeing is believing, they're missing the point here because seeing is believing. The very fact that we can see means that God is a powerful creator who designed us intricately and intimately to see what he has created. So a lot of times we believe that there is a powerful creator when we see a sunset, when we see an ocean, when we're in the North Georgia mountains in the fall and the leaves are changing colors and we're like, wow, there must be a God who created all this. When we look uh, with a telescope at the stars at night and we say, man, there, there must be a God who created all of that. Have you ever thought about this? Just the fact that you can see it, just the fact that you can appreciate the sunrise this morning, testifies that we have a God who is a powerful God. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. All thy works shall praise thy name in earth, in sky, and in sea. And so the fact that he created it, the fact that we could see it and appreciate it all testify to a God that we should tremble before because of his creative power. But in Proverbs, we also see God's committed purpose. There's a purpose behind all of this creation. We were created for his purposes. So back in chapter 16, we'll look at a few verses there. Proverbs chapter 16, verses 3 and 4, commit your activities to the Lord and your plans will be achieved. In other words, you need to line your purposes up with his purposes. Commit your activities. We are an active people. We are more active than it seems like than at any time in the human race. And we know that that computers and, and technology was supposed to be such an advantage for us and slow life down, but we are more active than we've ever been. He says, commit all of your activities, whatever you do, to the Lord, and your plans will be achieved. He says, the Lord has prepared everything for his purposes. Why do you exist? Not for your own glory, not to just eat, drink, and be merry, Make most of the you can out of this life, for tomorrow we die. You exist for his purposes and his glory. Even the wicked, he says, for the day of disaster, those who never profess Christ, those who never know God, God even has a place and a purpose that he will accomplish for them and with them. We begin to see God's purposes. In verse 9, it says, a man's heart plans his way, but the Lord determines his steps. And so we want to learn to walk in step with the Holy Spirit of God, the one who who has created us for a purpose. The Spirit-filled life is all about cooperating with Him and walking in step with Him so that we get in on what He designed us for, to worship Him, to serve Him, to make big of Him in this world, to make Him known, to die to self and to come alive in Christ. Colossians 3.23 says, Whatever you do, do it heartily or passionately, soulishly as unto him, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward. And so as you begin to study the book of Proverbs over the next 
several weeks. I pray that you'll come to a place where you say, listen, I want to apply this in my life, not because it will bring health, wealth, and prosperity, but I want to apply this in my life because it will give me wisdom on how I can live my life in a way to glorify God and make much of him so that he can reveal himself in me and make himself known through me to others, that others would have to testify that God is real because of my walk with him. Do you ask God what your purpose is each day? Do you ask God what your mission is, why you're here this morning, why you're breathing this morning, why you have eyesight this morning, why you have ears to hear? And again, some of us are struggling a little bit there, but why, why do we have the ability to comprehend? It's because he has a purpose and a plan for our lives Yes, we were made for a place called heaven, but until he calls us there, we're to be a people on mission here. And if we're not a people who have embraced his mission here, that might be a good indication that we're not headed there. And so we need to be walking in step with him, making the most of him in this life. Are you asking God to bless your plans, or are you asking God to reveal his plans? Have you written down a lot of things that you want God's hand on, or have you given him a blank slate and said, thy will be done? A lot of times we begin to pray and we begin to talk to God and we say, God, we need you here. We need you to bless this. We need your hand on this. God, I need you to do this in my life. I need you to, to, to help me with this. And, and it's, it's if in our prayer life, all of a sudden we begin to give God orders. And that would be as if a, a, a buck private had approached General MacArthur and said, well, here's the plan, General. Here's what we're going to do. No, no, no. That's not the way it works, right? In the military, you listen to the commanding officer and you learn and you walk in step with them and you obey their instructions. God has, and it's true, I believe what Billy Graham used to say in those tracks, God has a wonderful plan for your life. But it begins when we recognize and stand in fear and trembling of who he is, and then learn to walk in step with him as he feels and empowers us to do his work through us. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 says, Trust the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he'll make your path straight. But do we, knew, do we know him enough to trust him? As I look around the room, I see people that are together with family members and friends, people you've built a relationship with, and as you get to know them better, you learn to trust them. If you don't know them, you have a difficult time trusting them. And some of us have a hard time trusting God because we don't know him. But if we know him, we'll learn to trust him and commit our lives daily to him. We'll enhance that relationship. It's called a daily quiet time, and we have to have it often more times than once, and throughout the day we're walking in communion and in step with him. So for this new year, I pray that many of you, whether it's a month with 31 days or not, that this will be the time that you say, I'm going to spend time alone with God in his word, in prayer, every day. And then finally this morning, I want you to see that in Proverbs, we see his caring providence. The word providence is a word that we looked at this past fall, but it's the protective care of God over his people and over his universe. Now, the deist stops here. The deist is the one who says, I believe that there is a God who put it all in, in place. And like the divine watchmaker, he just, he made it, he lets it tick, he lets it run. And if it messes up, it messes up. It's not his fault. But we believe in a God who is providential. He shows his care and guidance over all things. 
We get in such a panic over what's happening in politics. <laughs> we get in such a panic over what's happening around the world. What does Proverbs have to say about that? Turn to chapter 21 and verse 1. It says, A king's heart is a water channel in the Lord's hand. He directs it wherever he chooses. And I don't care if you're talking about the President of the United States or an Isla, a leader in Arab nations today, God can direct the king's hearts wherever he so desires. He directs it wherever he chooses. In chapter 16 and verse 10, and by the way, it doesn't matter what their motives are, God still is sovereign over them. It says in, in Proverbs chapter 16, verse 10, God's verdict is on the lips of a king. His mouth should not err in judgment. And so when they get it right, and sometimes when they get it wrong, God is still able to work all things together for the good of them that love him. Even in wartime, we learn in Proverbs 21, in verse 31, a horse is prepared for the day of battle, but victory comes from the Lord. I think Solomon probably had learned something from his own father who said in, in Psalm 20 and verse 7, some trust in horses, some in chariots, but we will remember the name of the Lord our God. And so many of us this morning, you may not be enlisted in the United States military, but you know that as a child of God, you're in a battle. You're in a battle day in and day out. You're fighting, you're struggling, you're going up against some things that you'd rather not be going up against. Some things have come into your life or come into your home and you're like, God, why am I going through this? Why am I in the midst of this battle? Some trust in chariots, some in horses. We will remember the name of the Lord our God. We will not depend on earthly things because God is a caring, providential God. Back in chapter 16, we see that his care becomes very personal in our lives. In chapter 16 and verse 1 and then down at the end of verse 33, it says, in verse 1, the reflections of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. His providential care over your life, the lot is cast into the lap, verse 33, but it's every decision is from the Lord. Lots are cast 70 plus times in the Bible. It mentions the casting of lots to make a decision. What is the Bible saying? It says, do all that you can to make a right decision. Use every resource that you know of to make a quality decision. Use wisdom. Use common sense. Go to the word of God. Discover the purpose and the mission of God on your life. But then in the end, once you make the decision, you just have to trust God with the results. He's got his hand on your life. And if you're here and you're breathing this morning, it's because of God's providential care. And if he calls you home to glory today, it will be because of God's providential care. In 1709, a poor preacher, Pastor Sam, we'll call him, of a small church, a lot of people loved him, but he also took a lot of criticism. And I guess criticism was pretty harsh in those days because there were some people who set his parsonage on fire. 
Seven of his eight children, his wife, had gotten out of the house as it was burning, and he had one son that was still in the home. And some good neighbors had come over, and one had gotten on the shoulders of of another, and as he stood on the shoulders of another neighbor, he was able to pull his six-year-old son from the flames. This pastor whose son was delivered from the fire would be a faithful minister of the gospel, but he would never be known as having accomplished a lot of things. But his son, who was delivered from the fire, would often refer to himself as that charred stick, that brand snatched from the fire, as the prophet Zechariah would say. Because he was John Wesley, founder of Methodism, the Wesleyan movement. The pastor would say, Pastor Samuel Wesley would say, I have my children, let the house go. And his son John would shake three continents with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And all along the way, he would say, I was inspired by God's providential care in my life. God has his hand on you. Why would we be ashamed of a God who has his hand on us? Why would we be afraid to just totally commit and consecrate ourselves and say, Lord, here I am. Take all of me and use me as you will. Why would we hold back from serving him in any way when we understand his providential care on us, that nothing can touch us without his permission. Don't hold back. This morning, afresh and anew, give him everything that you are, all that you have, and say, Lord, I'm expendable for you. Would you bow your heads with me this morning?